Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. last two decades and thought about the sheer number of fatalities surrounding this case. Can I tell you a secret? That you man killed What happened? Those kids. Our kids. My, my whole brain's a bunch of missing pieces. That's when it all started. Panic. Hello and welcome to Still Watching True Detective. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Chief Critic Richard Lawson. Each week on the show, we break down the latest twists in the plot, theories from fans. We will be discussing Season 3, Episode 6, Hunters in the Dark. We will only be discussing everything up through that episode, not really spoiling things in the future. But, you know, if we have some things that we feel like maybe you don't want to hear, if you're cautious about spoilers or speculation, we will tuck it in a little spoiler section at the end of the episode. So that is how we arrange things. This episode was... Written by Graham Gordy and Nick Pizzolatto and directed by Daniel Sackheim. Daniel Sackheim's a great, uh, like sort of journeyman drama director. He's done some Game of Thrones and other things. And Graham Gordy is, um, I was digging into him a little bit. He's an Arkansas native, uh, who worked on The Love Guru, but don't hold that against him. He also worked on the great, uh, Sundance series Rectify, um, and a show called Corey, which I never managed to watch. It was about sort of like Vietnam vets and stuff like that. So he's, he's well steeped in Arkansas and Vietnam vet lore and all that sort of stuff. So his, his hand was. So at he's work a weird choice for this. <laughs> yeah, it's an odd fit. Well, I think he really brought the love guru sensibility. I think you yeah, can really see that come through. Definitely. Uh, we are going to zip through the, the episode sort of decade by decade, the way that we've been doing the last couple of episodes going, you know, 1980, 1990, 2015. But first we want to get through to a few of your emails, um, that we got. We got, um, you know, oh, I have one to- too. I have one too. I oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hit me. Well, uh, you, you go first. Okay. All right. We, um, we got one email that was a follow-up to my request uh, for someone to parse the Bible verse that inspired an episode titled a couple weeks ago. And uh, this is a little little belated, but I think it's really worth reading. Um, so this comes from Thomas. And he says, uh, of course, I have thoughts on the Bible verse are two detectives encountered outside the black neighborhood in episode four. The part comes from a big section of Jesus dialogue, and he spends a whole lot of time talking about how there will be false messiahs and prophets in the future, how the natural, historic bad stuff 
wars, famine, earthquakes aren't a sign of his second coming, but that will be some, something far greater, though he or anyone else is not the time when he will come. Theologically, this is one of the most important times that Jesus distinguishes himself, the Son, from the Father. The time of revelation is not up to the Son, but to the Father, which I take to mean in the context of the show, if there's anything that's going to solve this case, you won't find it by sheer effort alone. Keep a lookout for signs the Father is putting in your path. Finally, I think if you take all of Matthew 24 into account here and not just that one line, it's an interesting hint about a lot of red herrings going on. Even the explosions later, like racism, fighting, death, murder, those are all things that are going to happen, but they may not have anything to do with the final reveal that solves this particular case. And Thomas has a quick follow-up email, which I thought was interesting. That later in that same section of the Bible, Jesus also says, and many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Pretty interesting to think about Hayes enduring till the end. And then the last thing from that section, two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. This is him painting an image about what it will be like at the end, but the idea of one being taken, one being left definitely ties to the season. And the for, and for real life religious shits and giggles, it's important to remember that the people Jesus typically insinuates will be left are the self-righteous religious people who think they have it all figured out. I don't think that has anything to do with the show, but it's just a reminder of the lens to read Jesus through. All right. So that is Thomas with some a Bible deep dive, which I always love uh, as a both an atheist and an English major. Uh, Richard, what do you got for me? Um, so I got an Instagram message. Oh. Um, from a, a very nice person named, uh, Shinona. Um, and, uh, at least I don't know if that's her real name, but, but that's what she goes, um, by on this thing. Uh, but she said, um, she said that, uh, she wanted to talk about Brett Woodard's character. Uh, and, you know, I had sort of brought in some true crime things with the, um, Jacob Wetterling case and the West Memphis Three. Um, and she said Brett Witter's character could be a reference to the Girl Scout murders that occurred in Oklahoma in the late 70s. The main suspect was a Native American man named Gene Leroy Hart. During the search for him, he hid successfully in the woods and caves in eastern Oklahoma, and the search party included police, locals, and Vietnam vets' experiences in tracking and record terrain. Though not in that region of Oklahoma, we do have an actual site called Devil's Den and Robber's Cage Cave, which were notorious hideouts for criminals like Jesse James and Bell Star. So, if you want to, you know, do another kind of uh, true crime tie-in, you could look into the case of Gene Leroy Hart. Excellent. Um, we got, uh, on a little more tinfoil side, we got an email from someone named Neil, uh, who just wrote the most like tantalizing, basically there should have been red string all over this email to us. Um, I'm not going to go into it too much. Just to say that Neil claims that there's an anagram of the, the children should laugh, uh, the, the way it's spelled in the ransom note. So S H U D, the children should laugh that he believes cracks the case wide open. So instead of like, Neil's like, you can email me for the anagram answer. Instead of that, I'm going to ask our re, our listeners, like if they, I tried a little bit and didn't come up with anything. I even popped it into like an online anagram thing. It won't help you here. So if you can figure out a fun, uh, anagram of the children should laugh that you feel like solves the case and want to email it to us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. I'd love to read those. Um, and then even if it doesn't solve the case, I would love to hear your wildest anagrams of the children should laugh. Once again, should spelled S-H-U-D as in the ransom note. All right. And then this email comes from uh, Suki and 
She, we, we're going to talk about the name, the meanings of various names on this show a little later in this episode, because there's a whole long list of sort of name meanings that are going to be fun to dig into. But this email comes from Suki and she says, my ears pricked up when I heard the name Harris James. Uh, Harris James, as you guys might recall, is the police officer that we both think maybe Roland and Wayne killed in 1990 and was on the scene at the Woodard house sort of identifying that. uh And we get more of him in this episode. I don't know why I'm being coy. We get a lot more of Harris James in this episode, but um Suki writes, my ears pricked up when I heard the name Harris James, a reversal of folklore's James Harris. I see you, Nikki P. James Harris is the name often given to a seductive figure in Scottish Irish folk song that was carried over to the Appalachians, a song also known as the Demon Lover and the House Carpenter. There are lots of wonderful recordings, including recent ones by Irish singer Pauline Scanlon on Hush and Natalie Merchant on The House Carpenter's Daughter. In all versions, James Harris, though he isn't always named, seduces an old love to abandon her husband and baby and sail with him where the grass grows green on the banks of Italy. In some versions, their ship sinks for no given reason, but in many, he becomes a giant demon who sinks the ship to the bottom of the sea, pointing out the hills of hell, my love, where you and I must go. I heard the song as a child and has always haunted me. And in fact, I'm working on a story where James Harris roams the South China Sea. James Harris does pop up in some noted writing, including short stories by two masters, Shirley Jackson's The Demon Lover and Elizabeth Bowen's The Demon Lover. I wouldn't call true detectives Harris James very alluring or demonic, so maybe his name is just intended to hint at the supernatural while deepening the sense of unease that is building. We'll see. So to respond to Suki's great email, I would say two things. One, like any kind of Pied Piper figure, anyone that's like going to lure someone away from home, you know, I think is worth noting this season. And then um this idea that, you know, a Harris James or James Harris character could lure someone with promises that turn to hell also, I think, feel relevant to this. Yeah. So uh that was a great note. Especially after this episode. Yeah. Uh, and then the last one is from Lisa, who just quickly says that her husband noted that when we see uh, Roland's property at the end of episode five, uh, we see old man Roland and where he's living. There's a no hunting sign in his woods, which is a nice little like sort of loop back to the beginning of the series where Roland and Wayne were talking about hunting and like what sportsmen like and what's mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. Which brings us to this episode, which is called uh, Hunters in the Dark, speaking of hunting. So our Hunters in the Dark, I would say, are, are probably roll it in Wayne, though we can maybe apply it to something else if we want to. Um, and we will, you know, zip through these timelines starting with 1980. We get sort of Wayne and Amelia's first like post-coital conversation and, you know, talking about Wayne's first time firing his weapon as a detective. And we see both like a few things. I think this scene to me stands out as a way in which we lie to people that we want to start a relationship with. Like he's sitting there and he's like, you're worried that I'm going to judge you. I'm not judging you. When we know that like Wayne will eventually be judging Amelia very harshly yeah. uh, as their relationship goes on. And then he also tells her, I'm not the kind of guy who looks back. I don't remember, blah, blah, blah. And maybe that was kind of true of younger Wayne and and just not true of older Wayne. But he then gives this like look to camera while he's moodily smoking a cigarette. That's like, actually I do remember. I just don't want to tell her like is sort of what it seemed like to me. So um that, that sort of stuff. And then, the only other thing we're talking about in the um 1980 narrative is this, you know, uh, Attorney General Kent stuff, which we talked about in the last episode of the podcast is Kent being sort of a prime suspect for 
being involved in the case. And once you, um, once you feel that way about him, like once you think that he's working to push guilt on whoever is not himself, um, then it, it feels very obvious to me in this episode. Once you view it through that lens, he's just put, trying to push things on Woodard in 1980 and trying to push things on Tom and just like tidily wrap up the case and find someone to pin this on. So in 1980, we get him pushing things on Woodard. There's something called conviction in absentia, meaning Woodard's dead, but they're going to convict him anyway. And he just said, our officers are going to need all your evidence, all your investigative reference records, which could be how evidence goes missing if they have to turn it over to Kent. And, um, in the 1980 press conference, you know, Kent is again pushing the, the water narrative. And, and, and we see Wayne pushing back against it a little bit. Yes. He's like, absolutely. what do you mean? They were meeting someone in the woods. Like, you know, what, you know, yeah. he's like, we have all these details and I, I'm, I'm satisfied that they like showed that little moment because, you know, it, it had seemed like almost like Wayne was just going to blindly accept the water thing. And, and, you know, that, that would bring us in, you know, kind of conclude the 1980 story and bring us into the 1990 and, 2015, but it's, so I'm glad that they added that extra little, um, moment because, uh, it, I think it, it better serves Wayne's character. Yeah, absolutely. And then the last thing I'll say in 1980, as like Lucy has stormed out of the press conference, first of all, like as we get closer to letting go of our Amelia theory, like the way in which Amelia deals with Lucy here, I feel like she genuinely is like apologetic and defensive of Lucy Mm -hmm. as this other reporter is going after her. So like while I will happily accuse Amelia of being opportunistic, I think she isn't as maybe cold and calculating as we might have thought in some of the previous uh, episodes of the podcast. And, um, and Lucy, Lucy says, justice, what does that mean here now? Don't apologize to me ever, which feeds into my thinking. And we get more of that in this episode that Lucy, Lucy was also involved in this and like maybe sold her children off and is upset to see the wrong person convicted for what happened here. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we got to see, uh, Ms. Mamie Gummer one more time. Um, and I, I think it's interesting that her character is now moving closer toward the center of things, you know, even though she's been a relatively small part t- in terms of screen time. Um, I really appreciated this episode, how so many different threads that I had thought were sort of, you know, maybe kind of dangling in the wind kind of were pulled back in. Um, and incorporated into the larger whole. I mean, it really makes you think that there was a real, a real thought behind how this season was constructed. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I really, I really, I like the ebb and flow of things. And, and as much as like red herrings can bother me, like any sort of Tom red herring in this episode, um, you know, it's tough to calibrate the rhythm of basically a law and order episode over eight episodes and like many decades of investigation. Yeah, you know? just act, just to ask AMC and the killing. Right. Mm. So, yeah. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Hi, I'm Lale Aracoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. 
my first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoplu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. So then we get to 1990. Um, where we've got, you know, so basically like 1980 is wrapping up, pinning everything on water. This is the pivoting in 1990 investigation, pinning things on Tom. We get this Tom interrogation, which, which Roland really should not be a part of given his personal relationship with Tom, but, um, uh, attorney general Kent and then the, the, uh, you know, I don't know if he's a state trooper. I don't know the, the level of the guy who's sort of his second man here, but his name is Blevins. So Kent and Blevins are pushing the Tom narrative. Uh, you know, could he have colluded with Woodard? Could he have planted the items at Woodard's house? Um, you know, which Wayne and Roland were sort of surprised to hear him say, cause they hadn't brought up the idea of planting evidence at Woodard's house to them yet. So like that he just offered that felt like, you know, is someone leaking him info? Like what's happening here? Um, and then Roland and Wayne investigate Tom in a way where they're both like, we're on your side, buddy. We're trying to help you, but they're also pushing him very hard. Uh, Scoot is just like going at a 10. Yeah. Uh, maybe <laughs> a little bit 11. Yeah. Scene. A little 11. So, I'd say, yeah. I'd say. Yeah. So like it ends with this sort of primal scream. I think I was with him at, up till the scream and then I just sort of got yeah. lost a little bit. Um, you have uh, in, our, in your notes here, um, all caps, we know he, Tom didn't do it. Is, are you referring to, to the fact that in the first episode, um, we see him kind of like look up from the, the car and be like, where are the kids? It, Not just that, but then also we see him drive around looking for them. Yeah. I mean, that's a weird, so it's a weird thing then to sort of like focus this much time on. I mean, I don't think we're supposed to be questioning whether or not he might have done it, but I guess, I guess it's just sort of like showing a, a further sort of roadblock or whatever obstruction in the investigation. Um, but it seems like kind of coming this late to, um, maybe unnecessarily get in the way of things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that, um, I have that Tom is, seems like such a prime suspect, I think, among fans. Once again, unless I'm reading the odds wrong in case, and maybe I really am, because Tom and Lori were at the top of the list, but maybe they're actually at the bottom, because like Lori, Lori, uh, Roland's girlfriend just seems like a nice poultry scientist, and, uh, Tom, you know, the dad usually has done it, I think, is the, is the, like the reason why you might suspect a Tom, but, um, we, yeah, we've seen him not do it i think so you know unless yeah. they're unless the show is gonna pull a really hard twist um i think uh you know i i don't think tom did it at all um they mentioned the spy holes um they mentioned did you give her to somebody which is like such a weird thing i think for them to bring up even though that is my theory that lucy gave and it's the, the, the first time we heard we've heard language like that yeah exactly yeah yeah 
Um, all right. So, um, we get some Wayne and Amelia relationship stuff, like Wayne and Amelia being both addicted to sort of this hunt in their own way and the way in which they use this case, like her book investigation and his, uh, criminal investigation as, as a way to sort of avoid issues in their own marriage, uh, or confronting those issues. So, you know, it was nice because I feel like we've seen Amelia, um, sort of overly invested in in a way that we felt was uncomfortable, but it was nice to see that as like a two-hander sort of, we both have our addictions in this um, issue. Um, and then we get to, to the part of the episode. There's like, we're, we're about to get to the part of the episode that um, I really loved. So let me just put it out there. There's something in this episode that I really, really loved, but first we have to get through this like really misguided thing, I think, which is this late in the game, uh, Tom is gay storyline. Tom yeah. is closeted and repressed. And I just sort yeah. of let out a groan when this happened because as we have alluded to on this very podcast, the way that the closeted gay storyline was handled in season two with Taylor Kitsch's character was Mm-mm. just like one of the major problems, I think, in season two. And so we're like almost done with the season. It seems completely unnecessary to understanding Tom's character. I mean, maybe there's going to be something, some revelation that I don't know about. Maybe Pizzolatto feels like this absolves, uh, you know, Tom of being interested in his young daughter sexually, or maybe it incriminates him for being, you know, maybe yeah. it is interesting to explore Wayne's prejudices around this because he has some and stuff like that. But like, mostly I'm like, why is this here? And could you just not? Resist it, and what is your fascination with this? So, Richard, what do you think of this? Uh, Tom is Tom is uh, a repressed gay man storyline. Hey, look, I'm all for a gay character in shows. I'm always, and especially when it's a surprise. But um, yeah, this just felt like a narrative crutch rather than an actual sort of organic character development. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think the way that Taylor Kitsch's thing was handled in in season two, it's like there's these very very tortured men, you know, like deeply closeted, you know, hating themselves and maybe the community that Tom lives in, in, you know, 1990 Arkansas, highly religious, like is not an easy place to be gay, but like, you know, we hear mention of, of like queer bars and like, and hookup spots. And it's like, okay, so there are people like living that life um, in, in around Tom. I don't know. So that the whole sort of, it, it just felt like, man, like, wh- why does this t- so often have to be a sort of just, like, device to to show further trauma? You know what I mean? Like, I'm reminded of, um, in that movie, the Stephen Queen movie, um, Shame, with Michael Fassbender, where, like, at the height of his, or the nadir, the low of his sex addiction, and then the score is soaring, and, you know, this kind of, it's just this really intense moment, is when he goes to a gay bar and, like, gets a blowjob from a guy. As if something that you could you imagine anything worse, you know? <laughs> uh, um, could you even imagine? Yeah, uh, Wayne mentions the queer underground, um, which is like I, I. It's not like I'm not interested in seeing the queer underground of 1980 rural Arkansas. I am. I just am not interested in what Nick Pizzolatto has to say about it. Yeah. Uh, to be honest with you, Nick is, as far as I can tell, a straight man. I mean, he's got he's married to a woman. Uh, you know that doesn't necessarily mean straight as an arrow, but. Uh, 
Like, I just not, I don't think he has anything interesting to say about this, as we've already seen in season two of True Detective. I cannot believe he went back to this well. Uh, and, and for what reason? To, to make Tom a more conflicted character? Like, he was already that. You know what I mean? Um, to make it clear, to underscore that he definitely couldn't be his own kid's father. Uh, that's not true at all. If you're gay, like, you can definitely have kids. So, like, I, it just, I don't know. I, I hate that it's here. I really do. Um, especially the way that it's revealed by like a brochure. I mean, his, his boss, his old boss says something, but then there's a brochure in the drawer that says homosexuality can be cured. The thing that Scoot said to me in last week's interview is that there was something that had yet to be revealed that would sort of come into conflict with his own like religious, um, uh, you know, new religious life. And, um, you know, definitely in rural Arkansas in 1990, I can see being gay as being in conflict with being, um, you know, trying to be religious, trying to 12 step, all the stuff that he's doing. Um, uh, you know, at least being out and gay. Um, what is interesting to me about Tom here? In this episode, and we saw a little bit in the previous episode is this, is this idea of a man whose life was out of control. And then thanks to Roland's help five years in the in the past, he sort of got it under very regimented control in terms of like, I'm deeply religious now. I'm 12 stepping. Here are my chips. Here are my prayers. Uh, my, his living space is really tidy. You know what I mean? Like this seems to be a man who's erected all of these sort of, um, systems so he can feel safe and in control. Um, and then it all just comes just unraveled within the span of an episode. And so that's interesting to me. I just don't think you need the gay storyline to be part of that at all so i mean the other thing is that like um uh he's got so much going on already that like adding this kind of like oh he kept a homosexuality cure brochure in his you know drawer very sort of on the nose (laughs) like it's just like it just it it turns him into melodrama you know and i think that this season has been otherwise pretty restrained even in scenes where like maybe gummer's freaking out or you know is that my daughter in there kind of moment, yeah. you know, like, yeah, like yeah. it it has, it has kind of, um, uh, you know, eschewed the kind of stuff that like made the killing a little bit too ham handed. Um, yeah. and so this just feels like, all right, like if maybe if they'd woven it in from earlier yeah, and it became a part of him, but like having it but be a just plot drop twist, it here? it's just like, yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like in Three Identical Strangers, the documentary, where yeah. they use the suicide of one of the brothers as yeah. like a plot twist. And you're like, that's not like, this isn't, and, and I mean, that was a real thing, so it's very different, but it's like, so these things need to be like more carefully kneaded into the, to the dough, you know? I mean, especially when you've got like two of the brothers are getting interviews and one isn't, I don't know. That's and you're a, like, oh, that's where a, is that brother? Yeah. Where's yeah. the third brother? I mean, that's a weird Three Identical Strangers tangent, but relevant. Um, yeah. all right. So let's go to a scene I like better. There's two sort of interrogation scenes I like a lot better in this episode. The first one is with Harris James. You meet him. Um, he is now working working for private security for Hoyt Foods. He started right after the case. Suspicious. Uh, has like guns and big game on the wall. There's a photo, I think, of probably of him and Hoyt. And I zoomed in to try to figure out who the actor is who's playing Hoyt. Because uh, that hasn't been revealed yet. I can't find it online anywhere. So it looks like a generically gray-bearded character actor is who we're going to get. Not like, oh my god, it's someone in that photo. Um 
what I like about this scene is that Wayne is not having it at all with this. Um, Harris is trying to push suspicion on Tom, which if he's working with Kent to try to cover up this case, um, you know, it seems right in line. And then he does this like, you know, not to like <laughs> immediately circle back to homosexuality or whatever, but he, he says this thing to Wayne where he's like, you've got a good body detective yeah. in a way mm-hmm. that I felt was like just trying to put Wayne off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I felt like Harris read to me is really smart in that scene like the way in which he answered all of their questions very like jovially and casually like why wouldn't i take this job and like insulting them and like just completely throwing wayne off with that comment i i really liked the layers yeah. on that scene you know? yeah it, it was a creepy scene and i think it, it 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 um in some ways i liked the way that it 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 reminded me of the first season of the show which had this kind of heightened eerie you know, otherworldly air to it that this season has been a little bit more grounded. And, yeah. and, but I think that like this episode, I, I, I got kind of sucked into because it, more of that strangeness is, is sort of added in. And I think this scene was kind of the kickoff to that. Yes. And so then we get Amelia on the case. Uh, she talks to a nun. She talks to a girl named Shelly, played by an actress, uh, Lindy, Lindsay Muscle or Musel, who is, uh, not, a uh an Olsen sister but looks like she might be an Olsen sister mm-hmm. um and she talks about uh Julie who would go by Mary July and here's a big thing that actually happens in this scene this is classic true detective she looks at the window at one point and there's a guy fucking around on a truck and it says Ardoin landscaping on the side. Mike Ardoin is the name of the kid in like the early episodes who like seemed like he had a little crush on Julie and talked to Amelia about the Cornhusk dolls and stuff like that. So like, um, that I think that's meant to be grown up Mike Ardoin, like at his landscaping truck out the window. So that like, I don't think the kid Mike was involved in the kidnapping at all. I don't think anything if that's true, but he might be involved in like where Julie goes in the nineties. Like if he's a young kid who had a crush on Julie and she like reaches out to him in some way Uh and he is around where she's been and is able to help her hide or whatever it is he's doing. That would be my guess. That's that to me, like just a look out the window and there's someone and there's a name on the side of the truck and it relates to a kid we saw a decade ago. That's a very true detective um, here's a gardener moment for you. Yeah. And like, exactly. Exactly. It's season one. We see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think also that this episode proves that this is not a season that's forgetting things, you know? And so if there's stuff like that, maybe some of it's red herringy, but like, you know, even with the red herring of the, of the three teenage boys, we at least got that other scene that reconciled it with him older yeah. and, and resentful, yeah. you know, that I think this season is like careful to address each of its kind of plot points, one, you know, gradually. And so I don't think that you introduce that kid character who, you know, has kind of a couple scenes with Amelia, like without maybe some resolution to that. So I think you're, you're definitely right about what that little visual clue. Um, and then we get Shelly, if that's her real name, uh, you know, like there's, there's a paranoid part of me that's like, is that actually Julie? I don't know. Like, because we've seen a photo of Julie at that same time. It yeah. doesn't look like the same person. So I don't think it is, but like, she's talking about Julie. We get some info about like what Julie remembered living in the pink rooms, a queen in a pink castle. Uh, but this is all, all in all, just like a really good little performance from this actress, Lindsay Musel. Um, you know, she says like, you want to write a book about what happens out here, what happens to girls? Like, I thought it was, it was just really 
like well you know she only has a few lines but it was well well rendered well delivered so there you go and amelia is like kind of tender and sweet and like holds out her hand to her and stuff so i thought that was you know even as even as amelia is like digging her nose into things she still like actually has like some slight maternal um aspects here all right i don't know if we want to cut this or not but she is listed as being in another episode of the show okay so i don't think we need to cut that She's, Shelly, she, Shelly might return. This yeah. could be Julie. Shelly did it. <laughs> <laughs> it was Shelly. Um, so this is my favorite part of the episode. You can disagree with me because this, this is another one that's like a little bit at 11 at times, but I was really into it. This is the return of Cousin Dan. Yeah, Cousin um, Dan has apparently become a vampire from the looks of it. <laughs> Uh, a meth addict vampire, Michael Graziati, uh, the actor. We knew we'd see him again because his wig was so bad in the 80s. And here it is, like, another delightful wig in the 90s. I loved this shit in the diner with with Dan. Because um, he lays out a lot. Like, he's just oh, kind of... does. Yeah. 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 He's like, here's the conspiracy. Like, uh, first of all, Dan and Lucy, who are cousins, definitely, like fucked as children that's a thing we learned i think in this scene and like maybe dan is the kid's parents like will and julie's parent dad maybe Mm -hmm. um he says that people who do not renegotiate are who are involved here that lucy was getting money from someone that they made it look like she od but she didn't actually od so maybe she was killed for asking for more money and that it's all about the kids so he's saying he has more information. He'll, he'll basically say who this shadowy person is, like, paying Lucy and, uh, interested in the kids if they give him $7,000. Um, so that's a lot of info from Vampire yeah. Dan. And I guess, you know, we're criticizing, I was criticizing that the, the, the Tom is gay reveal, but I guess, like, the further you think about this relationship with, with Lucy, um, and, and sort of what Dan oversaw, you know, like, like, eavesdropped in on like like this was a kind of this was a marriage that was sexless kind of at its core loveless in a very sort of profound way and so maybe the gay thing does add an interesting angle or or interesting texture to that i just wish again that it had been you know sewn in a bit more carefully throughout the season rather than just dropped in an episode I think that's fair. Um i think my least favorite part of the episode comes next which is john tom getting out of his cell and very improbably overhearing a lot of details. <laughs> yeah. like, it's pretty, it's pretty ham-fisted in that, that was moment. Like, it was like 1130 at night because a lot of like needed to like, he was like I don't know, he overhears <laughs> like whatever. Uh, he overhears these two other investigators just like yeah. laying out everything he needs yeah. to know. Um, like basically go- reading from a case file like <laughs> yeah, aloud. Like, exactly. Yeah. Uh, he then goes to confront Dan at the motel. There's like a whole, um, I think one of the key elements here is not just that like he beats up Dan, uh, that he, you know, we get the implication that the people was not either of them. And we find out sort of later in the episode what that's about. Um, where did Lucy get the money and run off? I know who was paying her, blah, 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 all that stuff. But actually what's also key in that is that Tom is like, Dan, you're lazy. It was easy for me to find you because this used to be one of your old haunts. So basically like if Dan is hiding from shadowy people who are trying to cover up the tracks, he's doing a bad job of it hiding out at this motel. So like the fact that Dan ends up in the bottom of a quarry is a no surprise to me (laughs) because like if there are bad people trying to cover tracks, they could easily, if Tom can find Dan, they can find Dan. So there you go. Um, The thing with the, the people, I know that we um, like, I know we didn't really talk about it in the, 
earlier, but like that, that it was the kids passing notes to each other, right? Um, that adds such an extra sort of dimension to their relationship that we don't really know much about and also kind of a sadness to it. It's like that these kids were trying to help each other. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm glad that they didn't go the... I'm, I'm glad that that little detail had such an interesting um, answer to it, you know? Um, that it wasn't the kind of obvious thing. I think that that's, that it, it gives, it gives the, the story a bit more, uh, I don't know, gravitas or something. Yeah. And then we, um, I agree with that in, I'm not sure I understand how Wayne like came to that conclusion just by looking at it again, these many years later. Um, but you know, maybe it was like Tom's flat denial or whatever it was, but the fact that, you know, Wayne, Wayne, we go see the Purcell home and what it's become. It's just trashed out and graffitied and all this sort of stuff like that. Um, and then Wayne makes the people, uh, makes the people conclusion. We get Amelia doing a book reading. Uh, Richard, when you did readings for your book that came out, uh, and is soon out in paperback, I believe, uh, were you interrupted by, um, a character actor from the X-Files? <laughs> the book is now in paperback. Uh, so oh, everyone buy it. It looks great. Yes. New, whole new cover. Uh, and yeah, the cigarette smoking guy kept showing up at my readings, like just like just chain smoking <laughs> and whispering conspiracies at me, you know, so, uh, so I, I, I feel, I felt Amelia's pain in this scene for sure. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Richard's book is called All We Can Do Is Wait. So yes, please do go buy it. It's a fantastic read. Um, the, yeah, so Stephen Williams, who played Mr. X on the X-Files, shows up as the, a black man with a dead eye. I mean, like, let's not pretend that this isn't the black man with the dead eye that we've been looking for. Um, this is not the same one that they interviewed in 1980, but you know, it's Stephen Williams, who is an actor who's recognizable to at least Exiles fans. Uh, he's done a number of other things. Uh, and he, this is another one that's sort of at 11 where he's like, do you know where Julie is? Do they know where Julie is? You know, sort of thing. So, um, so there we go. That yeah, I'm he, sure like, will he, come up again. <laughs> he, you know, excoriates, uh, Amelia for in, in a, in a more v- v- like direct way, but similar to how Wayne feels about the whole thing, you know? Um, and yeah, I'm again, like, you know, we've had this recurring detail about a black guy with a, you know, a dead eye. Um, the show is not going to forget that person, you know? Yeah. So here, here he is. And I'm, I know I'm, I'm positive. We'll see him again, uh, in the next couple episodes. And here we get this concluding part of 1990, which makes me wonder if we need to be coy about any of our theories anymore. Because, And it's kind of amazing that it happens in episode six, which makes me think I, I now have a theory about another revelation. But anyway, Tom breaks into the Hoyt, Hoyt Manor. Harris James has him on the, like, Harris James like this motherfucker. He has him on the security camera from the beginning. Tom is drunk. He goes, he like, you know, wanders in down a hall to... A room and like we mentioned the film room uh starring brie larson or, or the great book by emma donahue um you know that that like maybe julie was kept in a sort of room situation and here we see the pink the pink room it's in the basement of hoyt manor uh and then tom says julie as harris james sort of looms up behind him so uh not looking good for tom and in fact we find out in 2015 elisa says eliza says the the documentary director says uh that tom died so there maybe harris james is gonna like hit on him because he (laughs) maybe this is the this is we are underground aren't we it's a pink room joanna all right get with it (laughs) you know fayetteville's hottest gay nightclub is (laughs) hoyt chicken house it's got everything. Yeah. It, it, it is funny that, that there is this parallel with sharp objects where like 
it's this kind of like, low, you know, lower middle class town, but then there's this one mansion, you know, sort of because of like food, like animal processing that, that, that exists. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of a, it's a funny parallel, but, um, and I like the kind of like gothic y creepiness of, of this, this kind of, this ending to the episode, even though it feels a little bit more sensational than we've gotten before. I think it, it I think it's, it's kind of like hitting that true detective sweet spot that I want to show. To oh, it. absolutely. Like, you know, Tom's standing there and we're all like, Tom, look out behind yeah. you. Like, yeah. obviously look out behind you. And then the fact that Harris just sort of like looms up. So we have 2015. We've got, uh, Eliza talks about like the fo- the Julie phone call as essentially something that indicted Tom, which is like, is both true and just like incredible that that could be used as evidence. Cause we don't even know necessarily who makes the call, though we didn't, he did find out that they pulled a partial print from Julie off a payphone outside of a, you know, a rest stop somewhere. So like they, they're pretty sure that the real Julie made that call. Um, Wayne has an interesting line reading here. He says, it's terrible what, what makes, what this work makes you ponder, don't you think? And I already brought this construction up, don't you think? As something Amelia said to him on their first date as sort of like a leading statement, don't you think? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's a, a tick of Nick Pizzolatto's writing or a conscious way of having Wayne echo like Amelia's phrases as someone who was married to her for decades or what, but um, there's all of that. Eliza wondered about, is wondering about Harris James. She says the, the mother, the father Woodard, all the dead out at Woodard's house and cousin Dan, like all these people who died uh, or disappeared. And then she says this line that's in the trailer. That's just sort of like, have you ever stopped and think about the sheer number of people who like yeah. died around this thing? Cause um, it is an awful lot of people. <laughs> Yeah, and that's, that's, you know, when, when I wrote that original sort of true crime piece that went up on VF.com based on some of the stuff that you had brought up, one of the cases that I mentioned was The Boys on the Track, and w- which is an Arkansas case about two boys who were found dead on a railroad track, but probably moved there, and a lot of like government was supposed to be involved in the cover up and all this sort of stuff. But what was really interesting about that case is how many people died and disappeared around it. So that's just sort of like reminded me of that. Um, Wayne needs a break. He and Henry have a chat outside about Henry's extramarital affair. Um, which I'm just, uh, this is another thing where I'm just not sure that they're really, I think this is supposed to be the payoff of that, this conversation between the two of them. And it doesn't really feel satisfactory to me. It feels like a weird side plot that doesn't really land the way that I think they're hoping it would. What do you think of this? <sighs> yeah. I mean, I think that. <sighs> You know, I, I think that as a sort of like, not reflection of, but a sort of different version of Wayne and Amelia's marriage, like the whole, did I teach you to withhold, like Wayne kind of grappling with like, how, what kind of father he wanted to be, what kind of example he wanted to set and what he actually did, you know? Right. And I think that that's something that probably parents as they get older have to kind of reckon with. It's just like, I had all these intentions, but actually it turns out I did X, Y, and Z, or I, or I kind of showed my kid this. So I guess I liked it in that, but I also, you know, it's sort of like these two men talking sort of plainly about an affair and, you know, like it it felt a little bit like lopsided in some ways, especially because we don't know the wife's character at all, you know, Um, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, I agree that like in an episode that satisfied some things in an interesting way or brought at least plot threads back into play, um, this felt like a kind of like 
a whiff because I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I guess I didn't really care about that as much as I thought I did. Yeah, which is like odd because I, I, we really do like, or I really like what Ray Fisher's been doing. Um, I just, I don't know. I, I feel like there's so much more to dive into with Wayne and his kids. Like we still don't know what's gone on with Rebecca, with Becca, his daughter and all of that sort of stuff. And so maybe that's a, a meaty part of season of episode seven and eight, but like, I don't, I don't really understand. And like, it seems kind of contradictory, his advice here. He's like, don't tell Heather about your extramarital affair. Cause you're going to cut it off. And you, so you're just like hurting her to make yourself feel better. Okay. That's not like the, best advice I've heard, but it's not the worst advice I've heard. But then he tells him like within the same breath, like you can't withhold anything, like don't hold anything back. So I'm like, uh, what's, you know, if, you know, and then it seems like Henry makes the decision to go call Heather, which I think is a good decision, but you know, I'm confused about Wayne's advice anyway. And then the last 2015 scene we get is old man, Wayne and old man Roland talking. They're talking about Harris James, uh, Wayne got a list of people from Henry of people who worked, who used to work for Hoyt. So they're going to dig into the Hoyt connection. Um, Roland is seeing like really seeing what Wayne, how, how deep Wayne is going, like the scribble notes in the books and all this stuff. And he's concerned. Um, and then there's this great part where Wayne goes to the bathroom and he comes back and he clearly doesn't know why Roland's there. I thought that yeah. was a really, really good moment. What did you think of that? Yeah. And, and, and possibly, it's like, wait, I haven't talked to this guy in years. What's he doing in my house? But like, it's a little bit wary. He doesn't want to like betray that he's not sure yeah, what's you going see him on. Covering, yeah, for, you um, know, yeah. I just think that I mean, I think Stephen Dorff is great in the show, and they have some great scenes together in this episode. But I also just think that Marshall Ellie is doing such a good job as the older guy, which could, you know, in a lesser actor's hands, be sort of like, you know, me in a high school play playing an old person, you know. But like. The, I mean, the, the hair and makeup helps because it's very subtle, but like also he's just like, he gets the kind of bearing and the voice and, and it, right. I don't know. I'm just, I was just so impressed with him in this episode and this scene in particular where he's sort of, you, you watch him kind of thinking, but he doesn't give away too much. Yeah. I'm, it's once again, I, I'm brought back to the physicality, like that Mahershala Ali just is this older man and, that Steven Dorff is just doing a really pretty good job of playing an older man. Do you know? Yeah. The makeup is equally good on both of them. It's so I think it's just the body work that just makes me, takes me, you know, there's just some movements from, and this isn't actually a knock on Steven Dorff because he's doing a good job. It's praise of Mahershala Ali and like how immersive he is, how every single joint is stiff and aches and how impressive that is. I was actually, I was looking at something else related to that. There's a scene in this episode, I think it is, where Marshall is like standing there. Maybe it's the like angry walk away from the car or something like that, where he just looks so like in the nineties plot line looks so large and imposing and broad shouldered. And then I think of him in Green Book and not even just the performance, but the physicality. When I just think of him in Green Book, I think of him as very like, thin and elegant and regal. You know what I mean? And then you and then compared to this sort of like 90s broad shoulder imposing presence compared to this 2015 every like joint in my body aches. Like his body work is just like not to sound like yeah. a creep, but like is very impressive. Well, he's so, got a very nice body. Yeah, as Harris James <laughs> would say. All right. Um and then we get this um this 
stuff with the sedan where like he he's talking about the sedan and and Wayne says he sees nothing out in the street so maybe uh, Roland says he sees nothing out in the street so maybe Wayne was imagining it and then Wayne says it's 2015 isn't it and and Roland's the sedan like, he's sure imagining is, buddy. yeah the sedan he's imagining that's kind of in reference to the fancy car that people saw right like do we think that's oh, kind be, of yeah. like what's in, what's in his head about it like he's he's been chasing this brown car for his whole life uh, yeah I've, i I think the sedan is darker than that, but maybe not. But yeah, it's shadowy sedans, nice sedans waiting. I mean, that's also classic. Like it feels very, uh, uh, oh no, what's the, what's the Russell Crowe Oscar winning mathematician movie? Beautiful oh, mind. A beautiful very mind, beautiful yeah. mind. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, but you know, like shadowy authority figures waiting, stalking you, watching you sort of thing. So that's all the plot stuff I want to talk about. Um, so, uh, are you ready to dive into some thematic stuff? Yeah. With me. Mm-hmm. All right. So I want to talk really quickly about collateral damage. Um, I think what's clear about the 1980s and the 1990s plot line is that like Woodard is our, is our sort of patsy, our collateral damage of 1980s. It looks like Tom is going to be our patsy, our collateral damage of 1990. These like two men who lives were completely wrecked by this thing. Um, not to mention Lucy and all these other things. But if you think about the way in which like Wayne's strong connection to Woodard, like as both as Vietnam vets who came home and their like connection, that interrogation scene and how like, Woodard being blamed for the crime is really something that destroyed Wayne in 1980. I think we see that Roland has like a really strong connection to Tom. And so like, you know, anything that happens to Tom is something that's going to like, I would imagine really mess Roland up. So just this sort of like these parallels that they have in these suspects, Woodard and, and, and Tom and the way in which their lives are destroyed. Because like, Roland post 1980s is actually doing quite well. It's Wayne who's messed up post 1980s and Roland's doing fine. But we know that whatever happens in 1990 really fucks Roland up. And so it's just sort of these like parallel figures that, that speak to these destructive moments in our true detective lives. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that like all of the hunting stuff is not without a purpose, you know, um, both Roland and, and, um, Wayne talking about it. And then this, the no hunting sign and this whole thing about Hoyt being away in Africa hunting and all the hunting stuff in the house. Like, um, and, and also Wayne's past, uh, and, and, and maybe Woodard's past in Vietnam where it's these, it's this kind of predation, this, this, this kind of pursuit, um, that, you know, almost demands that you not have empathy for the thing that you're pursuing, you know? Uh, and 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 I think the show is show, saying that like, but but there are people involved in this all along, and like the the kind of tragedy of it beyond the obvious tragedy is that like that Roland and Wayne were like there for each other or could have been, and one of them didn't you know take 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 the 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 outstretched hand or whatever like, and I think it's kind of trying to find the humanity in um this sort of primal kind of hunting pursuit kind of thing. And um, I don't know. I think that that's an interesting thematic thing. And I think it's uh, something that like is refreshingly humane um, in its approach to hard boiled, you know, male detectives um, much in the same way that at the end of the first season ended on this kind of like sweet note of hope that the rest of the season did not seem to, to be aiming towards. Yeah. So I appreciate that this sh- this season has a real emotional kind of register to it. Um, that is 
almost saying that like our investment in detective stories and murder stories is kind of looking in the wrong direction. <clears throat> that being said, I'm going to bring us back to, uh, to evidence and say, I gotta say, I'm starting to worry a little bit that Roland, you know, if we're talking about people who paid Lucy off and, and this idea of follow the money, see where it goes sort of thing, I'm worried about how well Roland does in the post eighties timeline. Yeah. Um, how nice his house is, how well set up he is and like how much ball did he play in order to get there? And, um, and that makes me worried that, you know, since we get this Hoyt revolution, re, uh, revelation in this episode, like it's, it's impossible to think that it wasn't Hoyt at this point, right? The pink room is in the Hoyt house, right? Yeah. Or someone um, associated with, yeah. Right. So then there's another big revelation coming and I'm worried that it's, uh, you know, Roland is somehow not involved in the initial case, but like looked the other way in a, in a, in a way that was opportunistic for him. Right. Uh, and, and Wayne, and if Wayne discovers that in the nineties plotline or in the 2015 plotline, it's going to gut him, you know, like big time. So, yeah. And I think that we maybe even saw it a little bit with like the way that Roland was looking at, at Wayne's notes and all that stuff. It's like, is he, has he agreed to go on this third investigation just so he can kind of keep Wayne in check? Yeah. So that's something I'm worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two other things that I want to talk about. One is American mythology. Okay. So full disclosure, it's legal in California. So I can say this. I got a little stone and was thinking about true detective. Sure. Uh, and so then I maybe started making, uh, galaxy brain connections that I ordinarily wouldn't have, but I was thinking <laughs> about the, like, I was thinking about the three seasons of true detective and what Nick Pizzolatto is really interested in. And if, you know, I don't think this is a spoiler. This is something I wrote up on VF.com. I don't think we talked about it on the episode, but I've been thinking more and more about um, Attorney General Kent, if he's involved in this conspiracy, as a Bill Clinton figure. And Hoyt, he's not a Clinton type. Like, he's not super charming and smooth and stuff like that. But, like, Clinton was Attorney General of Arkansas at this time. Hoyt is a stand-in for the guy, the the CEO of Tyson Foods, which was the major uh, corporation sort of running everything in, in Arkansas at the time. And the two, there are, I detailed this in my article, but there are a lot of real-life connection between Bill Clinton and Tyson Foods. So if we're looking at Kent and Hoyt. Um, and so what what it is that Pizzolatto is always going to be interested in is these real life um, American mythologies. You know, we always think that there's something sort of supernatural because that's kind of the way he writes this gothic Southern supernatural stuff. And then it ends up not being that it always ends up being structures of power, um, whether it's California government, Louisiana government or church or Arkansas government and corporation. And so like the way in which Pizzolatto looks at that, that is American mythology. Like these are our Kings. These are our gods. These are oh, yeah. the, the forces sort of driving this. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm saying anything like sort of revelatory, but like the way, like it kind of makes me think, and this is not a knock on you. I was just sort of like, why do we think it ever could be Amelia? Because that's too much of like a humanistic yeah. resolution mm-hmm. when obviously Pizzolatto is just interested in structures of power and the way in which they knock around, uh, poor, the poor people in this country. Sort of yeah. Thing, no, so. I think you're totally right. And I think that m- m- part of that, um, 
was thinking was, I was like, they're going to go much more simple you know, this season, you know, because the yeah. second season was such a mess. But like, now he's still interested in the same things, all these kind of systems and, and whatnot. And, um, but I just did want to say like, you know, if you don't want to have, to, if you don't want to say like, I got stoned, you, we can, you just say, I went to the diner with cousin Dan. Okay, I was at the diner diner with yeah. cousin Dan. Or, just doing some we, theorizing. <laughs> just yeah. eating some eggs, yeah. as it were, and yeah. um yeah. With your bloodshot so. vampire eyes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that you know, just thinking about Pizzolatto and, and the kinds of mythology and 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 the thing is, like, that's interesting. That's an interesting thing to dig into. Yeah, I think it's cool totally. that he's interested in that. I just think that sometimes he gets in his own way with like too much sort of like lurid, weird, uh, like, you know, pulpy nonsense. Uh, specifically in this episode, the whole like Tom Gay stuff, which just doesn't serve the, the, the more interesting stuff I think that he's trying to pursue. So there you go. Well, especially because he's, he's, he's exploring a lot in a in a sort of thorough and interesting way and then the gay thing or whatever it's just like kind of this little like un, unexplored detail will thus far anyway yeah and so it kind of just sticks out like a sore thumb and then the last thing i want to talk about um are these name meaning things we already talked about harris james james harris uh we talked a little bit about this on the show in terms of like roland someone someone on reddit pointed out roland the classic white knight we've already talked about the name roland and what that means uh but wayne the classic dark knight detective from dc comics so like uh i i don't know if that's something they were going for but that's kind of fun but here's here's actually a little bit more uh of a you know, linguistic based dig into the names. So the last thing you, um, are you a fan of the Edgar Wright film Hot Fuzz? Um, I like it. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I do like it. One of my favorite things about that movie is that everyone who lives in that world has like an Anglo-Saxon last name that has to do with like an occupation. So you have like Tiller, Cartwright, Wainwright, like um all these like old Cooper. Every single yeah, Hooper, like you know, um Skinner, all these all these great, great old names. So if you look at the names in this as someone uh on Reddit broke down on the True Detective Reddit, uh so Wayne, last name Hayes. Hayes is a dweller at the hedge or a hedged enclosure, keeper of the hedges or fences. Amelia Reardon. Uh, Reardon is a royal bard, a storyteller. Tom and Lucy Purcell. Purcellos are swine herders. Um, they're pigs, closely related chickens, lowly. Hoyt, someone who lives high or on a hill. Uh, uh, Roland West from the West, Brett Woodard, Wood meaning wo- uh, Wood meaning Wood, and Ward meaning Guardian or Keeper, so Keeper of the Woods. Uh, Gerald Kint. This, I mean, this is actually one of the reasons why I was like freak weirded out about Gerald Kint. Kint is German for old for child, and I always think of that like you know like Kinder sort of like mm-hmm. fairy tale creepy child stuff. So Gerald Kint, uh, Ted Lagrange, who's the um, the pedophile they beat up at the bar. Lagrange means barn lives lives by the granary of the barn uh so he got like beat up in that barn um mark ardwine uh mike ardwine who we mentioned uh dwelling or uh, dwelling or gravel valley is what ardwine means so i don't know what that means but dwelling gravel gravel valley Valley. yeah like a quarry like a quarry (laughs) where cousin dan was found (laughs) where cousin dan was found it's all coming together but maybe if it's just like if it's dwelling ardwine means just home 
Like that's mm. where Julie is. She's home, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Freddie Burns. Uh, they were like, did he burn the Purcell house down? I don't know. Anyway, that's a that's one. Uh, Police Chief Warren, protect or defend. Major Blevins, who is Kent's uh, second in command. It, Blevins is Wolf. So if you've got Joe Kent, kid, Major Blevins, Wolf, you've got like, and Julie is a missing like child. Uh, you've got a sort of like little Red Riding Hood kind of thing. And something that Mamie Gummer said to me in our very first interview on this podcast is like, the fairy tale associations she had with this idea of like a missing, ch- a child goes missing and then what happens? Um, a child gets lost in the woods and then what happens? So this idea that you've got like wolves and child snatchers and knights and all of this sort of stuff, like it baked into the names is another very Pizzolatto feeling thing because he loves his like literary illusions and stuff yeah. like that. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm feeling pretty good about our theory that Hoyt, Attorney General Kent, the man with the dead eye, Hoyt's daughter, uh, Harris James are all involved in a, like, lo- you know, large scale cover up that Julie probably, like, escaped and ran away from this place where she was held and captured. Um, and, you know, is trying, is trying to live her best life in 1990, possibly with her childhood crush, who's now a landscaper. So, yeah. um, that's, that's what I'm feeling. So, so then, like, then what revelations are there to come? Um, and once again, I, I think this family stuff with Wayne, we need some resolution on and like maybe Roland's how, how implicated is Roland in all of this? So, yeah. Cool. I'm excited. Yeah. All right. Um, so Richard, where can people find your work until next time? Uh, VF.com, 25 scenes, 25 years. Look at that list that I did with Cameron Collins. We're very proud of it. Um, I'm on Twitter at Rylaws, and I will be also exploring the gay underground of West Finger, Arkansas. Can't wait to see what's in there. Um, well, Joanna, where are you going to be? Um, well, eternally in the diner with cousin Dan. Yeah, um, well, California. But <laughs> um, I also want to mention that you and Kim Collins are on a uh, Slate Culture Gab Fest this week talking about those 25 scenes, 25 yes. years. So I m- recommend our listeners check you guys out on that great interview. Um, and you can find me on vanityfair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. I will be at TCA's in Los Angeles tweeting about and writing about all the television that's upcoming. You can hear, you can hear us talking about all the Oscar news and nonsense over on Little Gold Men. This episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez, and we will see you next week. Can't get enough of Bachelor Nation? Enter Betch's hilarious Bachelor recap podcast, The Bachelor. Each week, hosts Kay Brown and me, Jared Freed, recap the latest episodes of The Bachelor and make fun of all the ridiculous things the contestants say and do. Because honestly, why else watch the show if not for the fun commentary? Listeners have called The Bachelor the much-needed humor and commiseration they want after watching the show. Listen to The Bachelor podcast now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. 
My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakopli, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs> 